Welcome to Maximum Mom with Elise Buey, where you'll hear from women who are navigating the same messy journey as you. Lawyering, entrepreneurship, and mothering, what a trifecta. We're here to share tips, resources, wins, losses, and encouragement for moms who are raising a family while building a law firm. So you feel less alone in your journey toward a fulfilling career and being the best mom you can be. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Elise Bowie with the Maximum Mom Podcast, and I'm so excited for everyone to be here today to meet Natalie Norfus. I cannot tell you how many questions we are going to have for her. Just in the few minutes I was talking to her before we got on, I'm kind of mind blown by what she does. Natalie, welcome. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here, and I really appreciate the, the kind welcome. Oh, we're so excited to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about, I always like to start with people's, the family part, you know, as the Maximum Mom podcast, we're all about, you know, women who are moms, entrepreneurs to lawyers. And I'd love to just start with the family part. Tell us who's at home with you. Who's part of your family? Where are you? Yeah. So I'm in Miami, Florida, the mom of one child who. it's fun because he has his own career. And so outside of managing a business and, and myself for the past almost over 10 years, he's 13. I've been managing, helping to manage his acting career. (laughs) And that's like a whole different job. In fact, right before this podcast started, his agent emailed about a callback he has and me and his dad are both like in meetings at the time of the callbacks and like, can we get a different time? And you know, it's a constant negotiation of like, before we try to uproot everything we have, like, can we figure out a different way to make this work? So me or his dad don't have to, you know, try to rearrange all our clients. So it's quite the life, <laughs> I, sh- wow. I should say. <laughs> Well, okay. I have to go down that just a little bit. Please, how yeah. in the world did your child get an acting career? I mean, how did this start? So uh, when he was two, his dad had a friend that worked for the Miami Heat and got this ad for a modeling job. And we didn't know anything about any of it, but we just, I, um, my sort of hobby is, is landscape photography. And once I had my son, I, he became my muse. My dad's a jazz and blues photographer has shot for 50 years. And I never understood why my dad cared so much about shooting people until I had my son. So I'm like, we have a good sunset. We have a good, all these other amazing things we can shoot. So Theo took one of the pictures that I had taken of our son and submitted it and he got an audition. And so we, Two very young parents, not knowing what we're walking into. We, we both go to this audition, which is totally not what you're supposed to do. Only one parent's supposed to go, but that's okay. And everyone's like, you don't have an agent? And we're like, no, no agent. They're like, oh, how'd you get an audition with no agent? We submitted a picture, right? Like we don't, we're just like very naive in this whole thing. And so he books, which is almost unheard of with no agent. And it was American Eagle used to have a kid's line. And so he shot with them. Two was a very fickle age, as we all know, and he loved it. Like he just ate it up. He wasn't afraid, you know, to not be attached to me or, or Theo. Like we both, again, totally not what you're supposed to do, but we both went to the first job and we're all like, oh my God, this is so exciting. And he was okay being away from us. And he, you know, we could see him, you know, he always, we were always close, but, and so he did a few jobs with them. 
unrepresented. And when he was four, he just started pushing, like, I want to be on TV. Da, da, da. So we were able to find a program, a musical theater program that took four-year-olds to see if he liked it. Cause we always said he can try whatever he wants, right. football, karate. I mean, I'm, I could go down the list of all the different things he tried and he could do what he wanted, but we always wanted to make sure he was doing it in a, a form where someone was teaching him like the, the, the quote unquote right way to do it. So he loved it. And we got him an agent when he was four. We finally started shopping for an agent. He got an agent when he was four, his first commercial job when he was five and the rest is sort of history, but it's evolved and it is something he loves. And I, it's not something I would pick for him if he didn't love it. Cause it's a really tough industry. And at 13, he's heard no or no response to more jobs than most adults will in their entire lifetime. Um, and so it takes a lot of tough skin. As a parent, it's tough because I don't have the answers for why he doesn't get jobs and I can't tell him what he could be doing better. And his agents give good feedback, but it's like none of us can say exactly what it is. Sometimes you don't look like the family they choose. Sometimes they decide to go for a girl instead of a boy, like all these things he can't control. So it's, it's a pretty emotional process. Um, and I find certainly as a parent, you know, shouldering a lot of the stress because you don't want someone that young. I mean, we just do the audition and we keep it moving, right? Until he's booked, until we know that he's signed, we don't, I don't give him any feedback about, oh, they liked you, they want this, because it's like, you don't want to get their hopes up. Now that he's 13, he's, he's like super professional and he's worked a bunch. And so he better understands it. And so there's not as much shielding, but that was like tough, especially when he started realizing, remember, I'll never forget he was seven. You know, when they're younger, they just are excited to go to the audition. So they don't always recognize the difference between going to an audition and having an actual job. So once he started realizing when he was about seven, when he started realizing the difference and that thing he was getting hearing good things from a casting director in the audition room, but then he wasn't booking the jobs. And so he, uh, he said to me, you know, mommy, I feel like I'm working really hard, but maybe I'm not working hard enough. And I just oh. wanted to cry. Oh my gosh. But it's like, you had to hold it together of, you know, mommy and daddy have gone on interviews and they don't get the jobs. It's right. just like that. And, you know, but it's, it's, it's a lot on top of everything else. So, wow. you know, that is yeah. amazing. I think that's fascinating. It is. You all, it is. Oh yeah, it is. And imagine what he is learning. I mean, those well, are he's learning a lot. And the beautiful thing that. is I would say the most beautiful thing. He was on a panel for a movie he was in um, last weekend. And he said, which is like such a parent win, like my parents support me in whatever I do. So I know that I can try and I can do whatever I want. It was just like, oh my gosh. But it's like, you know, the professionalism, being prepared, oh, yeah. you know, looking people in the eye, like really cool things that I tell people that regardless of whether he chooses to stay in front of the camera, behind the camera, whatever he chooses to do are useful skills, you know, knowing that he has a resume, knowing that he has to have headshots, you know, it's, it's just been really cool to see him evolve into himself. And so now, you know, I make sure I told him that just, I texted him the other day. I'm like, you're the CEO of you. I was like, so you got to figure out, you know, what you, your dreams and how you want these things to materialize. And so when scripts come in, there's some that I will scan and, and say no to before he sees them. But I also like to give him the opportunity to read and see if it's something he's interested in because it's his career. Right. Wow. And so it's like, 
this is not something like, you know, I don't, if he says he doesn't want to do it, I'll decline for him. So it's, it's one of these things where now that he's old enough to have an opinion and really feel some way about, you know, what he sees for himself, just kind of go with that flow too. That is amazing. Oh, I just love that. Okay. Well, we're going to have to move. I could do a whole podcast on that. I'm exactly. (laughs) We're going to have to move. I want you to tell us a little bit about your career path, like what your journey has been, where you've gotten to where you are now. And then I cannot wait to dig in into where you are now. So tell us a little bit about your career path. Yeah, sure. So I spent, um, my parents divorced when I was really young. So I spent half of my time in like growing up in Cleveland and the other half in DC, which was really fascinating beginning because I got to go to law school in DC. I went to high school, undergrad, but DC was a really awesome place to go to law school. And I bring this up just because we got exposed to a lot. I went to George Washington specifically because they have an immigration clinic um, and so I really, that was my first sort of journey into fighting for what you want because the clinic was a lottery system. I did not get chosen. I did not hit the lottery in the first wave of being accepted to the, to the clinic. I bothered the immigration professor the whole summer before the fall semester. Like if someone drops out, like, I really want to do this. Like, and one of my friends ends up like she was, one of my friends was not as committed to the idea of a clinic as me. And she's like, Oh, I'm going to drop out. And I'm like, "Ah." and I was able to get in the clinic. (laughs) Um, and so the sort of, I was hoping that, that I could turn that into my career, but I also, as, as aggressive as I was about getting into the clinic and getting certain internships, I had gotten a job from a big firm as a summer associate. I got a job offer like two weeks into my third year and I just didn't keep looking for a job after that. So I sort of fell into labor and employment because it was when I went to this big firm, it was the closest thing to immigration. Like I really liked the people aspect of it. And so labor and employment is very much a people oriented practice area. And so I started off at a big firm in Cleveland uh, doing labor and employment went to Chicago. So the labor that we did and I did in Cleveland was more public sector work. I went to Chicago where I also did labor and employment, but more private sector and then moved to Miami about 12 years ago, uh, worked in law firms. And at the point at which I would be cut, like be put up for partner. And I was like, Oh my God, I don't think I want to be a partner. I don't know if I could do that. I got tapped with an opportunity to go in-house to Burger King. And so Burger King at the time I joined had recently been acquired by a Brazilian investment firm. So it was like basically start like the, the company was starting over from its corporate practices. But I always told people it's so interesting because it's, it was a 60 year old brand at that point. You can't push pause on selling whoppers and fries. No. So it's like the, the business is sort of operating like on the operation side. And we're trying to like build all these new processes to fit the ownership, the new ownership. So I got a huge like crash course. I always say like like an MBA in in life, uh, you know, learning all these new business practices. And then immigration came back around. I got to email my immigration professor because I was responsible for all of the work visas all around the world. So not even just in the US. So people in Spain and UK and Canada and Singapore. So uh, that was a, a really interesting and fascinating learning. And, and people would say, oh, it's business immigration, but 
I had a lot of people who were picking up and moving to countries they've never been to, wow. bringing their families. There was a lot of fear, a lot of concern. And so that was an interesting aspect of the work. I was also the employment lawyer globally and then the chief diversity officer. So it was a unicorn role to be in a lawyer position and this business position at the same time. And I kept those roles as Burger King acquired Tim Hortons and then acquired Popeye's. Um, And my last year, I wanted to try something completely different. My last year with the company. So I asked to move into the business and I oversaw franchising for Burger King in North America. So I helped franchisees buy and sell restaurants and focused on how to increase minority ownership in the system. So this franchise, franchising diversity, um, again, super fascinating. It did bring me back to what I loved about what I did on the legal side. And, and so I, I made a decision to leave and start my own firm. Um, and so with the firm, I, you know, the closest I get to traditional law, I think, as I mentioned, is doing internal investigations. Um, but the rest is focusing on HR strategy and DEI strategy. So it's been a really interesting, not so straightforward path because it took me a while to really find myself. I think a lot of lawyers feel this way. Like my first four years, five years, I felt like a fish out of water. Then you start to feel like, okay, I, I kind of get this. And like, what do I like about it? Um, and I always loved like the consulting piece. Right. Even when I was in a law firm, about 30% of my practice was consulting and doing projects with clients. And I'd love to get, I love getting in and learning an organization and really being like, okay, I get, I get you all. I'm part of you for right now. And then helping them with solutions that fit who they are. Like I don't have any off the shelf things. Like I have templates, but I always try to go into a new situation, open-minded so that we can help a client fit, find what works for their journey. Wow. Well, tell me, I mean, if you were to tell us like, what is your ideal client right now? Like, I mean, if you could just wave a magic wand and have a hundred calls this week, who would they be from? They would be from anyone who needs help uh, and has set aside both the budget and the sort of brain power for it. The work that we do requires clients to do work themselves too. Mm -hmm. So it's very tough for us when we, we get clients who like, we need a DEI strategy and they don't even, they don't have anyone like that is dedicated to the work on a full-time basis. When you're getting bits and pieces of people, it's hard to move things along. Contrast that with clients who have a DEI committee where the responsibility is shared and you have people that, you know, multiple people or the CEO is like part of the interview process. They want to meet me before they make a decision about hiring the firm. That's a completely different experience because there's a recognition that the work that we're doing has to be spread out. And, and I, and I think I can't underscore that because a lot of times people will hire a chief diversity officer ahead of DEI and be like, yep, we have that person. But all of this, there's so many pieces of it that, you know, it involves recruiting. If you have a supplier diversity program, it, it, it involves your supply chain. You're talking about marketing and making sure that your, your advertisements ref- are reflective of, you know, your customer base or the country. It involves marketing. 
one person can't fix all of that. One person can't address all of that. And so I would say clients who are able to recognize that people have to be involved to make it work are, are the ones that we value the most because it's fun. They feel part of it. They, we're really helping to guide. We're not dictating and we shouldn't ever be dictating because you know, at some point we leave. Um, but yeah. Well, now I have a question for you. I mean, this is coming from, I own a law firm in Seattle. I mean, and diversity is a real issue in finding diverse candidates and doing the things. You just mentioned a diversity committee, and that is something that I have been stewing around in my head of getting a group of us involved in such a thing. I have to tell you though, and I'm being very blunt and very just vulnerable in this, as a, you know, a, a blonde white woman owning a firm filled with other white people, it feels like our diversity committee can't even work right because it's not diverse. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I do. And so I really, and I think this is a thing in a lot of um, communication now, people really worry about us and I say us, I mean, somebody in my situation making missteps in our attempts to create better diversity. And can you speak to that at all? Absolutely. So first of all, we all have to start somewhere. And <laughs> I think that the thing I, so whether I'm doing like harassment and discrimination training or true diversity, equity, inclusion training, I always start off with the definition of diversity. One, I adore the dictionary, so I love the meaning of words. <laughs> but two, I also think that words take on new meaning when we're not sort of careful or precise about their definition. So when you look up one of the definitions, one of the key definitions of diversity is being composed of different elements. And so when you look at it from that standpoint, all of us bring diversity in some way, the, where you were raised, the languages you speak, the places you've lived, are you a veteran, are you differently abled, grandparent, parent, all of those are different elements of you. They make you who you are. So I think it's important to come to the table knowing that at least from your experience and thought process, you are bringing something different than probably everybody else that you work with. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't shoot for ethnic diversity, gender diversity, again, people with different abilities, that, that's not what I'm saying, but it's more like if you come off that sort of like defensive of like, I'm not the right person, I don't know, and sort of come at it more open, like we all have something different we're bringing to the table. It does help open up the conversations. I mean, I watch people's shoulders like sort of unstiffen and drop, you know, when I start to have that conversation because it's sort of like, again, we have to start somewhere. And so it's like knowing where you start is important. The other thing that I'm big on is knowing your why. So why is this important? Is it, and, and, and I'm not, I don't have any real judgment on the why, but is it because you see the headlines, you need to make sure that you're not the next headline? Is it that, you know, you recognize that there's, you know, you're not maximizing your business opportunities because you're a firm of all white people? Um, is it that you want to have different points of view more so than you have now? You're starting to feel like an echo chamber. I mean, like understanding your why also helps the story that you tell when you're when you're you're in your marketing materials. Like everything about who you are as an employer is a story that you're telling. 
Um, and it's important to really put the thought in. Um, and we sit, we, we work with clients on like their collateral, like your websites and things like that of like, does this website really represent who you are and who you want to be and why it is you're focused on this or whatever you post on social media or whatever you sort of have in client pitch decks. And so it's just thinking about this sort of holistically really helps with, you know, the concerns that you're talking about. And then, you know, cause we do have a lot of clients with, with senior leadership or ownership that's all white, but it doesn't stop you from learning and it doesn't stop you from, you know, bringing, knowing that you still bring something to the table. Uh, recently we've heard a lot of like, well, what about the middle-aged white guy? And, you know, it's like, we're, I never would say go fire all the white guys and hire a bunch of underrepresented people. And especially when you're looking at the success that certain companies have, they, they're successful because they had middle-aged white guys running them. So it's not this idea that they're not important. They need to be pushed out. It's more about bringing other people along with you. And you just, sometimes you have to get creative, creative about how you do it. And so we always are sort of thinking about those ideas, but I don't think that not having a lot of diversity stops the conversation. It's just doing that work up front to get comfortable with how to approach it. Right. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's all so important. I mean, and the idea of a diversity committee, I think is really helpful because again, like you mentioned, we do all bring different unique things. And the more of, of those of us that bringing our unique things, even if in our current scenario, it's not racial diversity, figuring out and having those conversations really openly, I think will do more to help us get more racial diversity and, you know, ethnic diversity and mm -hmm. other things by just sharing all those experiences, you know, and having those conversations, which I think benefits our clients immensely. The more diverse our team is from a lawyer paralegal standpoint, I think the better emotionally attuned we are to all our potential clients. Absolutely. I mean, whether it's, you know, socioeconomic diversity, ethnic, racial, gender. I mean, you know, all the things like, like you mentioned, being parents, not parents, grandparents. I mean, there's so many different things. But very layered. I mean, human yeah. beings are very layered. And I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot about intersectionality, right? In terms of I'm a woman, I'm black. So there's issues that deal with you know, that come up, come up for black people. There's issues that come up for women, you know, and how do those, how do those intersect? So that's a big part of this, but the other part of it too, is just life. Right. I mean, like, like, you know, how we started off. Okay. My son has auditions. I have client meetings. Dad has client meetings. Like we, how are we going to make this work? Right. How are we going to make sure it's some things we have to say no to, or, you know, he has swim practice. We have meetings. How are we going to make it work? Right. Okay. I needed to work out today, but it's my turn to take him to swim practice. All right. I'm going to walk while he's in swim practice, right? There's, there's all those different layers that, that we're all dealing with. And if, when you start to look at your own life and all the different things you navigate and you look at it from that standpoint, that some days are really tough because it's really hard to navigate. It's the thing that helps you to sort of open up to, okay, we'll layer on top of that being black. 
the layer on top of that being part of an LGBT community in a place that's not friendly to it, right? Those are the things that sort of help bring the empathy to the situation. And, and again, I think empathy is a really big part of it, but I also think you hit the nail on the head with how it makes you better at your business. And I do think that because people get caught up in the feeling part of it, the experience part of it, we, we don't always think about how important it is for a business. Um, I wow. talk a lot about um, McKinsey has research and it started in 2015 and it's called Why Diversity Matters. And they did a really like fulsome analysis across several industries to demonstrate that companies who really focus on having diverse leadership teams and diverse teams generally outperform their competitors financially um, and otherwise. Why? Because you're going to get increased innovation. You're going to get, you're, you're encouraging sort of these differences to come and meld together and create magic, so to speak, inside of an organization. So I think, you know, when you just bring it all back, so I focus a lot with clients on like, what's the business case? What's your why? Why is this important to your business? Because if you don't have a solid why, it just becomes something that sits off to the side on the shelf that people dust off, you know, every once in a while. And then they get frustrated, like, oh, we're not making movement. It's like, yeah, but you weren't really clear about why you wanted to do this work. And so, you know, I'm all about what you put out as what you get back. When you put out sort of clarity, you get clarity back. If you put out mishmash, you get mishmash back. So if you put out that you're not, it's not really that important to you, you get that back. Um, And we've seen, you know, the gamut and we see it, the gamut. And it's very fascinating because it's like, Everyone knows what right words to say, right? Everybody knows how to find the words to say this is really important. And, you know, we really want a diverse diverse team. But I'll tell you, employees are looking for action. I did a listening session today and one employee was like, we would just feel better if they just told us that this wasn't important. And then just we go and do our work. But like, we're not seeing actions that match the words. And so it's, 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 that's why I'm always saying to people, if you're, are you sure you're ready to do it? If this is what you really want to do, because you can't just kind of put your toe in it to wait to see what happens. The Guild is an insanely productive community of lawyer entrepreneurs with a growth mindset who share their collective genius and hold each other accountable to take their careers and businesses to the next level. But in 2021, we are upping the game. In addition to exclusive access to the group, FaceTime with the two of us, discounted pricing for live events, and front seat exposure to live recording and podcasts and video, we are mapping out for members the exact growth playbook with our new program, Maximum Lawyer in Minimum Time. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships and experience content specifically designed to complement your plan for growth. For a limited time only, the Maximum Lawyer in Minimum Time program will be offered for free to all new Guild members. Join us by going to maxlawguild.com. Well, talk to us a little bit about, I know as another part of your work, you actually do work with executives and coaching. And I mean, how does this all come into play? Like, I would think there would be many of these conversations in that part of your work as well as an executive coach. So there's two different approaches. So when we're doing a DEI strategy, we actually build in one-on-one interviews with executives. So not really coaching so much as understanding their views on on DEI, understanding what kind of support they may need, and understanding sort of 
where the company, because the senior leadership is the company, right? When we say the company, we know it's a fictitious place, but like the right. company, when employees are talking about the company is the CEO, the CFO, the head of marketing, you know, we do one-on-one interviews with an assessment tool that we have so that we are able to come back and say, you know, here's where we think the senior leaders could really benefit from some additional support, or here's where the senior leaders can do on their own without waiting for someone to come tell them, right? right? Equipping them with some tools. So that's the DEI side. On the executive coaching side, I mean, it really runs the gamut. As I mentioned, we have a, we have a two-part process where I have a, a mindfulness coach that works with me. She does one-on-one sessions around being mindful and being present and understanding how you show up. And if you're having communication problems with another department, or another executive or executive's team, breaking them down to sort of understand where, where, where do you fall in that? And then I come in on the more traditional business topics of, you know, having processes to manage teams, having processes to set and manage goals, having processes to meeting with your teams in, in an organized way. And like, what does it look like in those meetings? How are you talking to people? Because sometimes executives come to us because there's been a problem and a board is like, we're giving them this chance to try to work it out. And so those are always interesting situations when, when the executive doesn't directly choose us. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 it's still fun to try to help people sort of like, I do it all the time. Tell me how you give the, how would you give the feedback to that person? And then they'll tell me, I'm like, okay, so that's harsh. You know, like, let's think about how we can rework it. And it does end up falling into the DEI space in parts, particularly around inclusion and making teams feel part of the team and that they can show up as who they are and creating safe spaces, which is a big, big deal right now where people feel like they can raise contrary opinions, opinions that are not with the group think and not have a negative consequence. Um, And so talking to leaders around how do you how do you create a space where people feel that way? Because I think most leaders feel like, well, I have an open door. I want everyone to come talk to me. But they never really recognize the power that comes with their title. And no matter how cool I put in quotes, you feel like you are with your team. People still see you as the boss. And there's still going to be some level, some layer, some some obstacle wall that prevents people from being totally open, particularly if that is not welcomed, encouraged and the like. So it does round out the DEI space, but we often do executive coaching independent of whether or not we are doing other work with the client. I think that, I mean, you've just hit such an important topic as somebody who owns a law firm who that has grown a lot. Like, you know, when we first started, it was just a couple of us. I never think of myself as the boss. Like that is not mm-hmm. how my mind works at yeah. all. But clearly over time, I've come to understand that more and more people that work in my office do think of me as the boss. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait a minute, how did I go from just regular old Elise to a boss? I mean, mm-hmm. so, and it's, it is really, I think something we have to be so intentional about. I mean, like 
regularly intentional. And I mean, almost daily. I mean, I have like a whole little schedule of how I reach out to different people about different things so that there's that connection. I mean, I'm a firm believer and I would love to hear what you say. And I don't know if you've read the book. There's a book called Radical Candor. Mm. And it's about um, caring personally and challenging directly, you know, like being able to have those very frank conversations with people, but in a emotionally attuned, intelligent way. And it is fascinating because I think there it is it is a real art to being able to do that, you know, to have that emotional connectedness with your team that you can be radically candid with challenging them directly, you know, if maybe they're not meeting a a performance standard or they need some feedback on something. And I think as a boss, that is one of the just, I feel like I'm constantly learning and trying and trying to get that better. I mean, that's probably my biggest work internally for me. You know, how do I constantly be engaging with them, caring personally and developing those relationships. And then also being able to stand in my truth. And if there's a problem, be able to say what the problem is, you know, in a constructive way and be able to move us forward. Well, I applaud you for making the effort because I think a lot of what you just mentioned is sort of the thought where you're, you're being mindful of who like you and how you're showing up to the work. And the thing that I tell people often is first of all, there's a difference between like a manager and a leader. Right. And, and I won't bore you with all the differences, but when you own a business, your, your main goal is to be a leader. Right. Uh, or at least in my opinion, it should be. Um, because you have to be the 30,000 foot view. Yes, you work and you do stuff on a daily basis, but you're looking at P&Ls, you're looking at, you know, who's utilized and who's not. You're looking at, you know, we've tried and tried, is this person really the right fit? Are they going to work out? You know, there's there's this point where you can't always be tactical and in the weeds. And, and typically a manager is someone who's more tactical and, 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 that, and, and looking at it that way. The other part is whether you're a manager or a leader, you have to really be mindful of how people see you. And I think people don't really, a lot of leaders and or managers don't stop to think that, right? Because they, they feel like, oh, I, I'm part of the team. And it's like, no, people look up to you. So like an example I use in my training a lot, and actually it's funny because it materialized into an actual investigation issue, is this idea around like petty slights. And so the example I use is if you walk into your your office one day and there's four people that report to you and they're working and you say hi to all you say hi to three of them, but your phone rings, your cell phone rings and you forget to come back and say hi to the fourth. The fourth person is like, wow, does she not does at least not like me? Like, did I do something? And you are not looking at it that way, right? Right. At all, right? You're not trying to slight anyone. Like you're not thinking about that. And it's impossible to always be thinking about every way in which you're being perceived, but at least spending enough time to know how you are perceived or to at least keep in mind that it's like a real life reality show every day because everyone's watching you and what you're doing. Are you consistent? Are you fair? And are you sort of treating everyone sort of the same? And so, you know, fair is obviously somewhat subjective, but it stems from those little, the little things, the saying hi to everybody, 
the making sure that, you know, you, you know a little bit about something about everyone and so that there's a personalized aspect of dealing with them. Because then when it comes time for those frank conversations, you've built somewhat of a trust that you're consistent and that you're not going to just show up when there's a problem and that you catch people doing good things too. And that you give that feedback then. And so that's sort of like, it's, it's, again, it's like any other relationship. If you only focus on one part of the relationship, you're going to have a very lopsided situation. So, right. Well, it's interesting. You bring that up and, um, our, I work with an employment attorney at Jackson Lewis and that's who we've been working with and love them. But literally, I feel like my life is now governed by all these rules and regulations and things that, you know, I'm learning about and and getting information on. I mean, I'm a big, big gift giver. And who knew that this was like my love language, but I love sending gifts. And when my Mm -hmm. team does something great, I would, you know, send them flowers or, I mean, just random things, you know, somebody's bird feeder broke and I would send them some special bird feeder, you know, well, in the, my work with Jackson Lewis, it's been fascinating because, well, they're like, well, you can't do that. You know, you need to be very fair in all this. And so if one person is getting, you know, flowers that maybe are worth a hundred dollars and somebody else is getting a bath bomb set, that's, you know, worth $20. And I was like, but the person who got the bath bomb set really appreciated that. And they're allergic to flowers, you know, like, (laughs) And it's been fascinating to learn all the different rules. And I think so many of us who are kind of accidental owners, do you know what I mean? We, we start a business, we grow the business and we, all of a sudden it becomes a full fledged business with, you know, 20, 25, 30 people. And it's like, wait a minute, what happened to my regular little life where I could send out these things I mean, when you talk about doing your HR, I mean, do you come in sometimes in your company and work as like, I don't know what you'd call it, but almost like a fractional HR consultant to a business? Yeah, so we do. I would say where we we do that most often, frankly, is with with nonprofits. Because oftentimes the way, so a lot of times nonprofits grow like fast, right? right? So they start with a seed and a mission and then, you know, when they're when they're really rocking, they take off. And so HR sometimes is the last thing that is accounted for. And so we fill in that gap often. And, and again, I would say most heavily with with nonprofits and helping to create the structure, the processes. Sometimes even the safe spaces where employees feel like they have someone they can go and, and raise concerns to. But it's always very, it's super fun to just, you know, then get in and see like, well, what can we do now? What can we do here? And so, but yeah, so it's, it's that's why we've, we've developed, again, when we look at the areas, there's a lot of things that I've really spent a lot of time dropping because it's sort of like, where do we really want to be? in what space we want to be in. So, you know, I used to a lot of, do a lot of contract drafting and like, can I, yes. Do I do that now? No, because it's sort of like right. that time, that time of doing that takes away from, if we have a client that's, you know, has a monthly retainer takes away from issues that might pop up for them. Um, and being able to be, you know, spontaneously available or at least have availability. So I would say as a business owner, which, 
I never actually saw myself having my own business ever. But I think until I got to the point where it's like, there's stuff that I really love doing that is not really realistically one job. And so I could have gone out and looked for an employment lawyer position. I could have gone out and looked for a chief diversity officer position, but it was like, I wanted to do some of, of all of it. So I, I definitely think I'm an accidental owner too. And just in the respect of like, I, I had never even contemplated that, but I was like, you know, I've, be, I've, I've bet on a lot of, you know, employers and I've, you know, put invested in a lot of different places I've worked. I, I could bet on myself for a little bit, you know, and it's, right. it's been great. I mean, a lot of learning, I'm sure, as I'm sure we oh. could talk about all day, tons <laughs> of learning. I would say that, that when you start a business, I always, I've been telling people, make sure you have a bookkeeper or an accountant because all that stuff can get away from you really quickly. Um, if you don't have someone who's, if that's not your, your skill set, I do a lot of advising myself the way I advise clients. So I don't believe I can do all this work by myself. And so I am constantly assessing the help that I need and finding people who have the skills I don't have. And even if skills I have skills to build what we're doing, because I, again, I, I'm a firm believer. If you don't have help, you're only going to be able to grow as big as your arms can stretch. Absolutely. And I see myself as not having limits. So it's like, you know, you have to have help to do that. So we do needs analysis all the time. I was doing that last week. Okay. What am I spending my time on? This does not seem like the best use of my time. We start pulling it out to see, you know, what kind of help we need, which is the same thing I would do with clients is, right. you know, let's get, be real methodical here. And so it's been really fun to grow up again. I feel like is what I'm doing yeah. right now, but. I love though, how you have the HR employment lawyer kind of background, because I at least feel like you're probably sailing through that part where that <laughs> has been a huge thing for me. All these things that I, I just, I'm like, oh, I'm sure I can do that. And then, you know, the, the P, my attorney's like, wait a minute, what are you doing? Like, no, you can't do that unless you're prepared to do it for everybody. And I'm like, oh my, that could get pretty pricey. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, that's, that's when, you know, as you, that's when you start to hit those, those become sort of the, um, the nudges that there's something else your business is telling you to consider. Right. So if it's, the, you know, and trust me, I get it. I love buying people, people gifts. So the thought of parting with that being my, my thing to do is tough, but it is also like a sign of, you know, okay, your growth. And so maybe it's like someone needs to figure out like an employee uh, recognition program or something that helps you, you know, feel like you can still add that touch that's important to you, but that there's some process around it. That again comes back to being equitable and fair, and that people see you as someone who is not showing favorites. And even if the, the bath bomb person loves bath bombs and the flower person really loves the flowers, you know, there's maybe different ways you would get at it because you have something to think about it. Maybe gift cards to places where they can go get those things themselves, or you know. And right. again, I don't love gift cards because I'm like, no, I know what they like. I want to give them what they like. And, you know, but there's certain <laughs> things that come with, you know, the growth of your business and recognizing it and being able to go with that flow is like super critical. Oh, yeah. I think partnering with the right people. And I mean, I've been Absolutely. hugely impressed with Jackson Lewis, you know, in the work they do as far as also just getting materials out to me. They're always educating me, I feel like. And I really appreciate that. 
Well, you know, one of the reasons why I loved cool. joining Jackson, Jackson Lewis, actually, because I had worked in general practice firms where labor and employment was one of many practice areas. And it's tough sometimes for it to work because, you know, labor and employment cases aren't always high dollar value cases. Right. Um, and so it's it may be different than like, you know, a product liability class action that's maybe worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And so going to Jackson Lewis was awesome because it was just like, okay, we all do some version of this, right? You might have someone who does benefits and, and, and EEO one stuff or whatever the case may be is, but it just felt like, okay, we're all a part of, and, and the education piece is so critical. I mean, I get, I still get their updates. Cause I'm like, I need these updates. These are like <laughs> really helpful. And, you know, we, we, as, you know, especially small business owners, like, Again, again, when you're making time for things, the learning piece is super important. I mean, I find it very important to continuously read up on trends and what's happening. A, it makes me better at what I do, but I would feel sort of lost if I wasn't, you know, continuing okay. to educate along the way. Absolutely. Well, can you tell us, I mean, when you think about combining your trifecta of roles, you know, being an entrepreneur, a lawyer, a mom, I mean, what, do you have a tip, a hack, a you know, what is your best advice to somebody when you think about how in the world do you pull this off and managing your son's career, which yes. I mean, we're gonna have to add you in, you're going to be the trifecta plus one. <laughs> yeah. So I would say my biggest thing uh, that I, especially, I, I say this to parents, but uh, you know, moms in particular, who you think a lot of the moms I know carry a significant amount of the emotional load of, of parenting. And sometimes even too, like I said, like you think about like the planning and all the stuff that goes into it is don't lose yourself in the process. I, I felt when my son was about eight, that I was Theo's partner and TJ's mom. And I was like, where's Natalie in all of this? Right. And you can see how quickly it can happen, right? Because being a mother is like a huge blessing. And I love my kid. I think he's super cool. He's fun. I, I enjoy his time. He's so clever and he's smart. And so it's like that you get wrapped up into it and you don't find what's still important to you. Right. And I think that consistently sort of making sure that there's time for you and just you where it's not about work and it's not about parenting or, or whatever the case may be is, is the biggest takeaway I have of all of this. Because what it does for me is it allows me to monitor my energy. So when I'm feeling like really run down, identifying where I need to make space, because I do believe it's really important to have like idle time, not tons of it, but time where you just, your, you, your brain has a break and you can, you can think. Pre-pandemic, one of the things I did was I was gonna, I I was like with my girlfriends once a month at least we'll go out dancing because that was something that's super fun for me, and we stuck to it. We found a way to go out once a month. Obviously, that's not happening right now, and so it's just the don't lose yourself in anything that you're doing, whether it be your work, your parenting, your partnering, because you'll wake up one day really resentful, and it, it becomes then it's like you know you're fighting out of a corner instead of having a little bit more space to figure out what you need in the moment. That is amazing advice. I mean, that is such good advice. I wish I had had this conversation with you like 20 <laughs> years ago when I got completely lost in those roles. I mean, I think your question, like, where is Natalie? I mean, we really all need to ask that 
to ourselves Mm -hmm. and really ask and make sure we know, you know, where we are, because I do think it is so easy for us to get lost in these various roles. I mean, that is really probably the best advice I've heard in months. Oh, well, you know, it's interesting because I think about my, my parents and I also think about, you know, my parenting situation with Theo. And it's like, first of all, like my dad is like my guy, you know, he was such an amazing father. But when I think about him, it's like, he always had his stuff that was just for him Mm -hmm. playing golf, playing racquetball, you know, photography, because he he was in the pharmaceutical industry when I was growing up. So he had a full time, that, that full time gig. And I'm just like, and I also saw that Theo did a good job of that, like his stuff that was just for him. And I'm like, well, how can I be like mad at anybody? Because I'm not even making this effort like on my own to like figure out that for me. So, you know, it was hard for my kid at the time because it was like I was starting to do stuff that he couldn't come with me. And I was just like, listen, I, like I, I'm at, you know, he would be upset. Like, well, how come I can't come? And I'm like, you know, I'm not even upset about this because I was like, mommy created this of taking you everywhere with me and not going if you couldn't go and all these things. But understand that, like, I do stuff that's separate from you. And, and so it created a great habit and pattern and a healthier, I think, situation yeah. because it allows my kid to see me as someone other than his mom. Right. Okay. And so yeah. it's evolved too with the pandemic and working from home. Right. Because you can really see and hear you know, what I'm doing. And that also is a, a, sometimes becomes a check too. Right. When I feel like I'm so busy that that's all he's seeing. I, also, I take a step back. Right. I don't want him to see his mom only like just working to the bone and like giving him right. scraps of time. Cause it also just ends up meaning that I'm giving myself scrap. And so again, it's just one of these things where it's never going to be perfect. There isn't a quote unquote true balance, but it is making sure that you have the space and that you're, and when you feel like you're getting tight and you don't, you're feeling like you're pushing up against the wall, where can something give? Because we don't have to do every single thing that comes our way. Um, right. And saying was like perfectly a complete sentence. So I love that too. I, I have on my computer in my office, no is a complete sentence because I think really embracing that and understanding. And the other thing I think about is, I mean, I'm an older mom in the sense, my children are older. My youngest is 18. What you can say yes to at one point in your life is very different than what you you can say yes to at a different point. And sometimes saying no at one point simply opens up yes at another point. Mm-hmm. And it's also, we have real cycles, I think, in our lives as lawyers, moms, entrepreneurs. I mean, your business at some point gets easier. Your life as a mom at some point gets easier. I don't know about as a lawyer. I mean, lawyers, it's a pretty stressful job. But, um, you know, you you definitely master your craft as a lawyer. And it does yeah. look as you're older, I think. And, um, and I think we have to remember that, that we do have different cycles. Yeah. And it's just about like, and it's this, I find to be something that's particularly difficult for lawyers because lawyers tend to be somewhat set in their ways, right? Because we, we like, we know the law, we have a process, we follow it. And it can be really difficult to get lawyers to, to shift course. And I think it's sort of like, the, I was saying this to the consultant who works with me on mindfulness. I'm like, you know, you hear this whole goal with the flow and it sounds so corny, but when you really 
start to, when you, when you hit the first time of going with the flow and what that feels like, it becomes a lot easier because no now doesn't mean no forever. But when you start to feel like things, you're forcing it and you're making something work, you know that you're going against the flow. So, I mean, it's, and it's the boundaries and it's, it, it, you know, all of these things become easier. I think when you know what's not negotiable for yourself yeah. versus things that are merely preferences that might change over time, making those distinctions helps to navigate this, you know, idea around I'm okay saying no to that now because I definitely believe that other opportunities that better fit the situation are going to come across. Um, I'm sure you've had this with clients. I mean, we were looking at an RFP we're taking part in and it was like, wow, they want the kitchen sink and they were very clear about their budget. And it's like, I'm going to go back with what we can do. We cannot do hundred percent of what they want for their budget. Um, I'm not willing to bend in that way. Um, and, but that's okay. And if they are like, nope, we want someone who's going to do all of it for this price. No problem. Just not the right person for you. And I'm okay with that. And, and so it's just, it's an interesting, you know, ebb and flow of the yeses and the no's and, you know, that, and, and it's fun and it's hard because, you know, it does create, it does require you to become again, more in tune with yourself and confident because, you know, if you get if you're really worried about, Oh my God, if I say no to this, then what's going to happen. And, you know, we should just say yes. And it's like, then you say yes to stuff that you, you are saying yes to for the wrong reasons and you despise it. Right. Like you're doing this work and you're like, ah, this client annoys me. This project annoys me. And it's like, and I get it in the beginning of a business, you don't necessarily have the luxury of saying no to everything you don't want to do because you know, you're trying to build revenue, but you know, once you feel comfortable about where you are, you know, I'm always like, we just started a process on vetting clients, you know, on, you know, like what's, what what kind of clients, you know, to your question of who wants, of of who we want to work with so that we can get to the point of feeling comfortable that we have people who want to be partners with us. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Natalie, it has been so wonderful to talk to you. It's been a pleasure. I really really appreciate your time. Now, how can people reach out to you if they want to learn more about what you do and how you could help them? So Natalie at the norfisfirm.com is a great way. And we are in the process. We just got a new logo. I'm super excited about. We're in the process of building out our uh, website. So in the process, in the meantime, uh, I have a LinkedIn page for the Norfus Firm Facebook page where I'm putting up clips of me speaking so you can get a feel for my style and just our views on different types of awesome. DEI issues. And so those are other ways. But yeah, I mean, I answer my own emails for now. So um, <laughs> definitely I say for now because it's like, you know, it's starting to get unwieldy over here. But, okay. you know, definitely um, always welcome uh, being reached out to that way. OK, perfect. Well, I hope you enjoy the rest of your afternoon. And you too. OK, and thanks again for your time Thank today. You. Of okay, course. Bye, Natalie. Bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Mom Podcast, a production of Maximum Lawyer Media. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. See you next time.